Good morning. It's good to see you guys all from up here. Uh, this morning we're going to be in uh, 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. So if you want to go ahead and, and turn there in your Bibles, I, I don't know what page it is on in your particular Bible. If you do see 1 Timothy, I can promise you're getting close. Keep on turning. Um, when you have it, go ahead and stand with me, and uh, we're going to read this. I'll, I'll read this for us. So this is 2 Timothy, chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Paul says this, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything, for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy, for if we di have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Pray with me this morning before we dive in. Lord Jesus, as we come before you this morning, as we, we gather into this room, we would have no gathering if it wasn't for you. We would have no hope if it wasn't for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you God, that you will speak to us this morning, and we pray for that. God, I pray this morning. God, is, is my, my passion for your word, God, it, it is too low. God, my knowledge of who you are, it is not enough. God, but your spirit promises that you will speak, and so we pray that you would speak through me. We pray it would be nothing but your word, Lord Jesus, and it would be nothing but your gospel, that leaves us walking out of here with any hope at all this morning. It's in your name I pray. Amen. 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 All right, you can sit down. All right, so here's kind of my, my intro question that I want to pose to all of you this morning. If you knew that you were about to die, like you knew, all right, it's getting close, what is the last thing that you would want to leave behind? To people. Now that's kind of a weird question. You, you don't have to have a good answer right now. Um, you know, I, I was kind of looking up what people have done, you know, on their deathbeds. What's the last thing people wanted to leave behind? So, you know, maybe some of you, uh, when you're about to pass away, maybe, uh, I hope not, but maybe the last thing you need to do is uh, you need to confess something, right? Like, you're about to die. All right, hey, I, I got to get this off my chest, right? Like, um, and, and I'll go ahead and confess it right now. Um, when I was in middle school, so that, that way actually I won't have to confess this uh, then. I'm going to get off my chest now. Don't judge me. I'm confessing at the beginning of the sermon. When I was in middle school, my parents used to have this little uh, money jar that they had right next to our front door. 
and um, I, I guess it was just for, you know, extra change, and uh, I devised this system. I, I don't know if they ever noticed, they probably did, where like I would sneak like a quarter, maybe a nickel, maybe a penny here or there, and I would, uh, I would use that money to, to buy myself like those like delicious soft cookies. I don't know if you guys had them at your schools, but those like half-baked cookies they used to have. Um, so so maybe, maybe one thing you would do if you needed to leave something behind is you would, you would need to confess something. You, you know, maybe other people, uh, if, if you needed to, the uh, last thing you want to leave behind is like some sort of a, a wise saying or something, or something profound, something that, that people might remember. Um, I was looking up deathbed confessions, and, and I thought this was kind of an in- interesting one. Um, apparently, this is the story, that there was a, a French philosopher, his name was Voltaire, and uh, a Catholic priest was asking him, before he dies, last thing he said, hey, hey, I want you to go ahead and just uh, renounce Satan before you die, which Like, it sounds like a pretty good idea, right? Uh, And this was Voltaire's response. He said, Now, my good man, this is no time to be making enemies. Now, I hope that's not what any of you guys are saying on your deathbeds. I'm just going to go ahead and give you that answer right now. Now, maybe something that you would do is the last thing you leave behind would be an inheritance. Maybe you would want to leave behind money. Maybe you would want to leave behind a memory for your family. Well, the Apostle Paul this morning, as we get to 2 Timothy... He has left this letter behind. See, this is actually the last letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote that we have recorded in the Scriptures. Um, And and Paul actually knows. He knows that the time is drawing near for him. He knows he's not going to be writing more letters. Uh, If you look at chapter 4, verse 6, Paul actually says, The time of my departure has come. And so for Apostle Paul, this is the last thing he's leaving behind. Um, Now, after his theological masterpiece in Romans, after his admonishing the Corinthians, after his reminding the Galatians to stand firm in the gospel of grace and not the gospel of works, he has chosen in the spirit-filled, inspired writing and in the errant word of God to address this letter to to his his younger uh, brother in the faith, Timothy. He calls him his beloved child. Now, by the time we get to chapter 2, so we're already a chapter in now, so looking at the verses before our text this morning, uh, Paul is going to address Timothy. He's going to use bold language. Uh, he, he actually uses the example of a soldier, a farmer, an athlete. Now, when I was reading the text that kind of leads into our text this morning, I was like, man, maybe I should have preached that, right? Like, Paul gave three very clear and compelling examples. The only thing I have against it is he could have alliterated them. It might have made it preach a little bit better. But he leaves these to, he leaves these to Timothy, and it kind of sounds like a pump-up speech. Like, do this. Be strengthened in the grace of God. Here's these examples. And then all of a sudden, he pauses. He tells him to think about these things. But all of a sudden... We get to our text in verse 8, and things feel a little bit like they've changed by the time we get here, because we're reminded that there's actually a bit of a shocking, uh, you could even maybe call it a little bit of a scary context to this letter. Paul is writing this letter in chains. Paul is writing this letter as he's suffering. Paul is writing this letter bound It says that he is locked up like a criminal. And all of a sudden we get to a bit bit of an elephant in the room here, 
right? You, you know what an elephant in the room is, right? It, it actually comes uh, from a, a Russian poet. He wrote a fable uh, about a man who goes to a museum, and he's looking at all these tiny little objects in the museum, and he misses the elephant. It's right in front of him. A definition that we use for this idiom is an important or enormous topic, a question or controversial issue that is obvious or that everyone knows about but no one mentions or wants to discuss because it makes at least some of them uncomfortable. It could be embarrassing, it could be controversial, inflammatory, or dangerous. Paul is about to address in this last letter he ever writes, his suffering, his own being bound in chains, head on. And so as he begins to do this, there's a natural question that would arise to Timothy, and it's also a natural question that should arise to us. Paul just used these really compelling examples, right? An athlete, a soldier, a farmer. But how is a man who is, is locked up a man who has been captured, how is he supposed to go and use conquering military language? How, how is a man who is locked up in a, a small cell of concrete supposed to use imagery about cultivating and farming crops? How is a man who seems like he's already lost, how is he supposed to write about an athlete who cry, gets crowned and wins a prize? Like, what is he doing here, right? If this Jesus that Paul is talking about if he's truly the God in the flesh, if this Jesus is truly the third person in the Trinity, then how could he lead somebody to suffering? How could he lead somebody to being bound in chains? Let me, let me, ask, let me ask it this way, actually. Is this Jesus not powerful enough? Would he allow our chains? Would he allow the things that bind us to stop his very movement in the gospel? Let me, let me put it another way. Is this Jesus that Paul is talking about here, is he not caring enough that he would allow this to happen to one of his followers who's already given up so much to follow him? And if that's the case, why would we want to follow him? See, the reality is in this letter, there's already a lot of opposition going on. There's already a lot of, of suffering. There's already a lot of challenges that Paul is going to address in the entire letter of 2 Timothy. Uh, you don't have to turn to these places with me, but it, uh, just take my word for it as we walk through it. And in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul talks about all of those in, who are in Asia who have already turned away from him. In chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, he talks about those who have swerved from the truth upsetting the faith of others. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, he says that in the last days, there is going to be difficulty. And he uses example after example after example of what that looks like. By the time we get to chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, he says there's a time coming when people will turn away from sound teaching and instead wander off into myths. So internally, within the church, we're seeing that there's a lot of difficulties out there already. But it's not just internal. See, externally, as Paul writes this letter, as he's nearing his death, the Roman Empire under Emperor Nero would also soon begin to ramp up their persecution on Christians. One ancient historian, his name was Tacitus, uh, he wrote this about what would happen to Christians in the year to come after Paul wrote this. He said this, In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport. For they were covered with the hides of wild beasts. 
They were worried to death by dogs or nailed to crosses or set fire to, and when the day waned, they were burned to serve for the evening lights. As Paul writes these verses to a young Timothy, as we hear these verses this morning, there are two very important questions that we have to answer. The first question is, is, is it worth it? Like, like really, like, like, is it actually worth, uh, in, in a world where there's already enough suffering, like, I, I don't have to go convince any one of you that there's not enough suffering in the world. There's plenty of it to go around. So in a world where there's so much suffering, why would we choose to follow a Jesus who says, I want you to suffer even more when you follow me? And in a world where there's already so much that's worth our, our you know, trying to be worth our attention, trying to be worth our time, why would we choose to follow this Jesus? Question number one, is it worth it? But question number two that arises is, is it even really possible? Sure, you might say, yeah, it's worth it. It's worth following this Jesus. But in our own weaknesses, in our own limitations, in our own missteps, in our own failures, in the normal day in and day out and grind of life that we find ourselves in over and over and over again, how do we get to a place where Paul writes in the last chapter of this book, if you look at verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, where he says this, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. How do we get there? Is it worth it? And is it possible? This morning, I want to invite you into these very important questions. Because to be honest with you, these are questions that every single one of us, if we want to follow this Jesus, must ask ourselves. But I also want to invite us into the emphatic answers that the Word of God gives that come even out of the midst of Paul's extreme circumstances. So this morning, here's our outline. Question number one, is it worth it? We're going to see that we are called to remember in our suffering. Question number two, is it possible? We're going to see that we're called to endure as we're bound. And then uh, point number three, just an emphatic yes. It is because he is faithful. Amen? Amen. All right. So first of all, is it worth it? We are called to remember in our suffering. Now, we see this in verses 8 through 9, if you want to look at that text with me. Uh, and so the first question, as we're called to remember and we're suffering, that you might ask is, where might we look as we remember? Now, it's kind of interesting, actually, as Paul is writing this, because um, Paul tells Timothy to remember Christ. Now, you might say, yeah, that seems like kind of the obvious answer, right? Of course, Paul would say Christ. But it's actually a little bit ironic, because uh, Paul actually admits that it's actually Jesus' fault why he's here in the first place. Look at verse 9. He says, remember this Christ, but he says, for which I am suffering. Wait, so Paul's telling Timothy to look back at the cause of Paul's own suffering. Now, this isn't actually a surprise to Paul. If we look at Paul's uh, conversion in Acts chapter 9, um, the Lord said this about him. He said, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now it's also interesting, so Paul's looking back at that one, but he could, have, he could have looked back at a lot of other things. I think sometimes we forget, like, 
Paul could have looked back, you know, things are pretty bleak for him at this point. He's in jail. He wants to encourage Timothy. What else could he have told Timothy to remember? Well, he could have said, remember better times. Hey, Timothy, remember, you know, there was this one time when I was in the shipwreck. It was crazy, and I survived. There was this other time where we, you know, I was almost stoned to death, but the Lord provided. You know, he could have remembered better times. Or, or maybe Paul could have said, look, I'm at the end. You know, this doesn't look too good for me, Timothy, but, you know, let's, let's remember my accomplishments. You know, there's so many people who came to know Christ during my ministry. You know, look, look around. Look at these churches. Find your encouragements in these churches, right? You know, it feels like it would have been encouraging to remember some of those things in these times. Um, you know, even when, you know, it feels like it would be encouraging to remember these things, you know, we, we get to places where we need to remember the past to remember the future. Here's an example. Um, last week, there was a little bit of a stomach bug that was going around the church. And, um, and uh, yeah, so it was actually about a week ago. It's kind of a bad memory, but I'm going to share it with you anyways. It was about 3 a.m., and my stomach started to feel bad. The problem was, is Amy was already sick, and so I was like, oh no, like, this is, this is not going to be good. So uh, what I did is I, I have this whole routine when I feel like I'm about to get sick. I go downstairs, I chop up a ginger root, uh, I get these like cardamom packets out, uh, I make tea, and I just start eating every single thing that the internet says might help my stomach. <laughs> all right, look, now we know it's not going to work. I knew that this was all in vain, but I tried to convince myself. Uh, so of course, uh, here I am. I am uh, sick the next morning, and I'm laying on the couch. And as I'm laying there, miserable, I'm suffering, what was it that I was thinking about to get me through it? I was thinking about that other time I got another stomach bug three years ago. And I remembered to myself, you did it once. Like, you, you made it past it that one time. Now you can make it past it this next time, right? But guess what? Paul isn't even calling Timothy to remember that. See, Paul's not looking to himself who have done, has done some things, but he's looking to the Jesus who has already done all things. Do you get it? Paul, Paul's not looking to himself who can make a way through some of life's circumstances. Paul is looking to the one who calls himself the way. He's looking to the one who walked all the way to the cross and the one who rose all the way from the dead. That's the only hope that Paul has in this moment. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Oh death, oh death, where is your sting? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because your labor is not in vain. Where do we look as we remember in our suffering? The answer is Jesus Christ. Now seriously, if you get nothing else out of my sermon, if you want to check out after this because you're tired or you're distracted, just remember this. The whole sermon will be worth it if you just get this. Remember Jesus Christ. Like, we could go ahead and just wrap it up now. We could go home, like, we could have an early lunch. You know, no, it's not even 12. We could go home and have brunch if you wanted to at this point, right? Remember Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing, though. Paul doesn't just say, remember this, like, generic Jesus. Uh, he has a little bit of something to say about who this Jesus is that's worthwhile, because the, the honest answer is just your, your random Jesus that somebody's talking about is not the Jesus that Paul is saying is worth it. And this is important because there are a lot of other sources, other than the Bible, that are more than willing to tell us who this Jesus is. When I was in middle school, I used to go on uh, mission trips to Nicaragua, 
And uh, what we used to do on these mission trips is we would roll up to a village on the back of a truck, we'd preach the gospel with a translator, and then we'd leave. We'd be like, peace, see ya. Now, now in retrospect, like the Lord, I'm sure, used it. Not the best mission strategy, probably just to come, go, come be there and leave. Um, even worse, actually, what we would do as we left is we would, uh, we would have bags of candy, and we would just throw the candy out to the kids as we left. Um, again, not the best idea. Now, on this trip that I was on, there was this middle-aged, red-headed man named Harry. And Harry spent the whole week in Nicaragua trying to learn a little Spanish. Like, he had hola down. Um, but as we were driving away this one day, he said, you know, I'm going to do something kind of advanced. And I am going to tell these kids about Jesus and that Jesus loves them as we drive away. And so... We're driving away, and uh, just to let you know, uh, if you don't speak Spanish, um, what he should have said is, Jesucristo te ama. Well, and the people who speak Spanish here will get this uh, first until I explain it. Uh, what he was saying as he was dramatically throwing out candy to all of the kids was saying, me llamo Jesucristo. <laughs> now, just if you don't speak Spanish, what he was saying is not Jesus loves you. He was saying, I am the Christ. Here, have some candy. Here, have some candy. Here's my point on that story. Not everybody who claims to be Jesus is the real Jesus, right? Not everybody who has something interesting or good to say, or even if they're throwing candy and it seems like they have a great ministry, that doesn't mean they're talking about the Jesus of the scriptures. And there's only one who is worth it when we're suffering. And that's why Paul says, I have something to say about who this Jesus is. So let's walk through this a little bit. He says, he says in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Christ. This is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah. It could be translated anointed one. The Christ, a.k.a. this Jesus I'm talking about here, this is the one that was prophesied about throughout all of scriptures. This isn't just the Jesus that, you know, just came on the scene now, but this has been the plan from God from before time. This is the same Jesus who Ephesians 1.4 says that we were chosen to be in before the very foundations of the world. This is Jesus Christ. This is the Jesus who has risen from the dead, aka this isn't a Jesus who just died and stayed buried. This is a Jesus who, unlike Paul, is currently unbound. That's who this Jesus is, and that's actually kind of important in the context, uh, because if you actually look later on in this chapter, uh, Paul's going to mention a couple people named Hymenaeus and Philetus, who says, have swerved th from the truth, and it's actually relating to some wrong facts about the resurrection. This is also profound, because it means for those who are in Jesus, we are not just dead in our sins, but we with Christ have risen to eternal life and to victory over sin. He also says that this Jesus is the offspring of David. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we were, we were reading the Christmas story, and I love how the angels in Luke 2.11, they're announcing where this Jesus is going to be from, and they say Christ's birth will be in the city of David. Why, why does Paul mention this? This is important because uh, this talks about the kingly lineage of Jesus, right? This, this Jesus is the one who is in the line of David who will one day come back to be our eternal king. Not just a temporary king like all the other kings in the Old Testament, but he will be the eternal king. This is also important because if he's in the line of David, that means 
that he was a human. He came as fully God and fully flesh. That's important because there are a lot of other people saying this Jesus might have just been a phantom. He might not have really had a body. He doesn't really care about our bodies. No, no, no. What he's saying is, look, he's in the line of David. If you want to look at the genealogy, just go look back. You can see the genealogy and you can trace it all the way up here where this Jesus, born of a virgin, came through the line of David. And finally, he says that this Jesus was preached in my gospel. This means this is the Jesus of the entire scriptures. Paul has been preaching this gospel his entire life since he came to know Jesus. This is the Jesus who who came to earth, who died for our sins, who rose from the dead and calls everybody to repent and to believe in him. And it's interesting, though, that Paul calls it my gospel. He calls it this because he believes it. He calls it this because he's a minister of it. He calls it this because he, Paul, will die for it, and he believes that he will live eternally because of it. My question this morning is, is this gospel message yours? Can you say this is my gospel, my good news? Now, if this is the gospel message you believe in, We don't ever move past it. I just want to remind us, we've gone through everything that there is uh, of the gospel that Paul talks about, but it shouldn't be lost on us that Paul is here, uh, he's close to his death, and the one thing, the one command in our entire text, the only command Paul gives in this text is to remember, and the one thing after his entire life that Paul wants them to remember is Jesus Christ and the gospel. Here's the thing. Sometimes we as Christians are very quick to move past the gospel. I don't know about you guys, but but when I was younger, I used to see the gospel a little bit like this. I used to see the gospel as uh, an answer to a test that I got an A on, right? Like, you know, I I get the gospel. Hey, like, I, I can say all the facts about what the gospel is. I know who Jesus is. Okay, great. Put that answer down. Now what? You know, did anybody ever, when you turned in a test, like get the little stickers at the top that has like an apple or a wow, something like that? Like, you know, I feel like you, you get the answer and you get the wow. Okay, great. I know the gospel. Now let me move on to other things. Let me, let me figure out what other answers are because I already got this whole Jesus thing. But the problem is, is what I used to do is I would treat the gospel like something that I could move past. As Christians, we don't ever move past the gospel. See, it's not just something we say, okay, great, I got it, now I'm in. Let me move on to some some better commands or principles from the scripture that I can apply to my life. No, we never move past the gospel because if we think we can, man, if we think we can move past the gospel, at the very best, we are just practicing empty religion. And at the very worst, we're taking the very glory of God and we're trying to put it on our own shoulders. We never move past the gospel as Christians. And then we wonder when we move past the gospel why things start to feel rusty, why we start to feel distant from God. We, we wonder why sin starts to feel so tempting to us. We say, but you know, I, I read this, this one verse, but we're forgetting Jesus. We're forgetting the beauty of Christ. Revelation 2.4 says this, but I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. May that never be us. And we don't, we don't content ourselves to sit in the shallows. We, we dive into the fullness of Christ. 
If you've been following this Jesus Christ for, for one day, if you've been following him for a hundred years, we don't do this to check a box. We treasure this Jesus. This is why at our church, we recite creeds. This is why at our church, we have an order of worship where we go through the word. We go through a time of confession. We look back at what the Christians of old have said because we never want to forget. We never want to disassociate our worship. We never want to disassociate our minds and our hearts from the depths of who this Jesus is. So this morning, how are you reminding yourself of this? How are you reminding other people about the depths of who this Christ is, about what he's done, and about what he will do? Just as a reminder, there are depths in beauty to this Savior that we worship that we will spend not just the rest of our lives, but all of eternity exploring. May we enjoy and dive into that now. So first of all, we must remember and where must we look back to Christ and back to the gospel. Now, the next question kind of comes is, why is it so important that we remember this? Um, if we look at the context here, Paul says he's suffering. We, we, we live in a suffering world. And we're also prone to be forgetful people, right? If we're careful, we will forget the only one who makes our sufferings worth it. We'll be prone, like others in 2 Timothy, who Paul says, went on to go hear what their itching ears wanted to hear. That's what will begin to happen if we forget this gospel. And we'll chase idols just like the Israelites. We, a lot of us know the stories. The Israelites, God delivered them uh, across the Red Sea, out of Egypt, and they began to forget what this God had done. And what is the first thing they started doing? Creating idols. We do the exact same thing when we forget. Or in our sufferings, if we're forgetful, we'll get squashed by them. We'll get overwhelmed by our sufferings because the reality is, again, we do all suffer. There is suffering in the world. And Paul said also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, what did he say about Christians? We are to be pitied more than all people. Just wanted to tell you, Christ rose from the dead. So we don't need to live as a people to be pitied. We can actually look to Christ and rely on Christ in the midst of our sufferings, right? And so let's not forget. But this is important, right? Again, because we suffer. Jesus says it, it, it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. Uh, and we see suffering everywhere. This is actually a question that a lot of the world is always asking, right? You've probably heard a friend ask this before. You've probably thought it yourself. Why would a loving God allow people to suffer? This is a question the world is asking. The, the world wants to engage around suffering because it's something that we all see. And humans try to deal with it in all sorts of ways because none of us can get around it. But, but some of us, some humans, when they see suffering, they, they try to avoid it. You know, if I could just structure my life this way, like, let me move out to this county. I'll have enough space. I'll have a nice big fence. It'll be super tall. Don't even have to talk to my neighbors if I don't want to. Uh, I'll get this nice job. It's going to pay for all my money. I'm going to have kids, but you know what? Like, hopefully they'll, they'll turn out great. I'm going to send them to the best school system. We're going to be great. There's going to be no suffering. We just try to avoid it. It doesn't work. Other things that we try to do is we try to pretend it doesn't exist. Okay, look, like we know we're going to suffer, but let me just present this image to the world as if I got it all together. You know, we, we love to do that on social media, don't we? 
social media really shows us exactly what, every, what everybody's going through, right? <laughs> or we try to overcome it. We try to overcome it in our own flesh. Uh, I was, I was uh, talking to Amy. We were reading an article. Uh, it was a really ridiculous article. There, there's a, a thing called uh, abundance coaches. Um, and they'll teach you how to manifest in your own life abundance. So, you know, we, we've got all sorts of different strategies here. We can, we can just overcome it. Just push through it. Pull yourselves up through your bootstraps, right? That's how you can get through suffering. We could go on and on and on about things that we try to do to avoid suffering, and none of them work. And the world knows it. The world around us sees the suffering, and they're looking for an answer. The very Savior who suffered on our behalf who is more acquainted with suffering than any human who has ever walked on this face of earth is the answer. He's who we look to and he's who we tell others about. But there is something about being a Christian where we are called uniquely to suffer. Paul says he's suffering here. He's in chains, bound as a criminal because of the gospel. So as Christians, we're already going to suffer, but as Christians, we're actually called to follow a suffering Jesus. In verse 3 in this chapter, Paul says that we're to share in suffering. That's what we do as Christians, and I know that's not very popular, right? You're like, all right, why is Andrew talking about suffering for so long? Can't we get to the next topic? But here's the thing. As we follow Jesus, we will suffer as we love Jesus, we will suffer. As we love others, as we sacrifice ourselves for others, we will suffer. Sure, like the one answer that we always talk about is, you know, maybe we'll be persecuted. And there's a chance that maybe we will be persecuted for the faith. But our suffering comes in many other ways as Christians as we lay down our lives. Maybe your suffering will come in the fact that, that you choose uh, to, to work somewhere specific because you don't want to work somewhere else because of of Christ. Maybe you might suffer because you're standing around with some friends and they're saying a joke that you shouldn't be laughing out and you say, hey, you know what? I need to walk away from this. Maybe you will suffer because you say, you know what? I feel called to reach and love these people that the world has overlooked and so I'm going to live somewhere. I know I could go live over here and have this nice house, but I'm going to live over here. Maybe we suffer by choosing to walk through life with somebody who is difficult. The thing about it is, as Christians, we are called to follow our suffering Savior. But as we do, we find in the midst of it an abundant joy and an abundant purpose. Jim Elliott was a missionary uh, in Ecuador. He was really influential to me as a, uh, as a kid. And um, he, was, uh, he was killed at the age of 28 by the very people group that he was coming uh, to reach a very people group that actually after he died, his wife would reach with the gospel and many of them would come to know Christ. But this is what Jim Elliott said, and I think it speaks so well to our call to suffer. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. This is what we do as we suffer and as we follow this Jesus. Is it worth it? Remember Jesus in our suffering. All right, so that's the first question. Now we're going to get to the next question, and that is, is it even possible? Is it possible? In verses 9 through 10, we see that we are called to endure as we are bound. In uh, 2015, there was a British 
escapologist. That is a hard word to say. Um, I did not know that an escapologist was a title that one could go by. Um, I'm just imagining putting that on my resume or something. Um, But anyways, he uh, was this British man, and he decided to try a particular stunt. And it was a stunt that had only been tried twice in the past hundred years. Um, And those two times that it was tried, both people failed, including Harry Houdini, who, like, I don't know a lot about magic and stuff, but I think he's, like, the the top guy, you know? Um, So here's the stunt that he tried. He was handcuffed, and he was to be buried alive in a standard-sized grave, so six feet deep, no coffin. So he uh, lays down in the grave, they handcuff his hands, and they pour six tons of dirt on top of him. I know, I can see a lot of you being like, why would you do this? I don't know. I think he, had a, he thought he had a plan. He's an escapologist, right? So um, he's in there, and one minute goes by. Two minutes go by. Three minutes go by. And after nine minutes, he did not escape. <laughs> But I will say, they actually did dig him up just in time. Uh, he was almost dead. He, passed, he was passed out with a broken rib, and they did resuscitate him, actually. So um, I didn't want to get, get too uh, dark here. <laughs> I don't know what his plan was, right? I, I don't know how he was trying to escape, but he was bound, and he had no way out. The Apostle Paul, in this point, as he writes, is currently bound, and he has no way out. The difference about Paul is that he doesn't have anybody to come get him. He is locked up in chains like a criminal. He sees the end of his life ahead of him. And the problem is, is is what if we're bound? You know, it's it's great that Paul is, is telling Timothy, look back to Jesus, remember him, it's worth it. But even if it's worth it for Paul, his eyes are on Christ. Here's my question, now what? Now what, Paul? Is it possible for God to use Paul even while he is bound in chains? Now this this might seem like a little bit of a jump, but I would propose that this is where we live most of our lives as well. We live our lives as those who are bound. Now I hope most of us don't spend any or much of our lives ever actually bound in chains or in jail or in prison. But we are still a people who are bound. Moses says in Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now some of us might think when when Moses said that, what he's really saying is, okay guys, like, let, let me number my days. Let me, let me know exactly how many days it's going to be so I can write this equation. Okay, like it's going to be 60 and a half years. So then let me maximize my time in this time so that I can go and do great things. That's not what Moses is saying here. He's not saying let me just figure out how many days I'm going to live so that I can know how to smush as many things into it. No, what Moses is saying, the thrust of that verse, like the rest of his psalm where he says that we are going to return to dust, is that we have a number to our days. That means we're fragile. That means we're small. That means we're weak. That means that we are a people who are bound to our flesh, who are bound to our own limitations. Now maybe this morning you feel bound. 
Maybe you feel bound in your current life circumstances. Maybe it's the time constraints of having a child or multiple children, and all of a sudden you're in a phase of life where you're saying, I don't even have any time. How am I supposed to even do anything to follow the Lord right now? Maybe it's the unforeseen need of taking care of a family member. Or maybe it's a difficult season at work right now where you're working so many hours and you're saying, I don't have time for anything else. Maybe it's a difficult time at work. You're at capacity. You're overwhelmed. You're stuck. Or maybe it's your own strength right now where you feel like you're bound. Maybe you've been sick. Maybe you've been weighed down emotionally or mentally. Maybe you felt confused. If we're honest... We all go through times, we all go through seasons where we feel bound by ourselves and we feel bound by our circumstances. And that's because to be human is to be bound. And God created it that way. And so often, even as Christians, we try to unbind ourselves in our own strength, right? We try to unbind ourselves with our own plans. Like, if I could just plan this out far enough in advance, then I could do X, Y, or Z, and I could get to this point in the future where everything is going to be better. Has anybody else ever thought like that? I feel like that's how I'm thinking all the time. Or to unbind ourselves, we try to work harder. We try to work smarter. We try to work more efficiently. And then we get stuck in this cycle of feeling bound, trying to get ourselves out, looking to some moment in the future that doesn't even exist, and then doing the same cycle over and over again. Here's the thing as we look at the scriptures that Paul writes this morning. He's not, wor- he's not worried about that at all. As he's writing from prison, bound and chained like a criminal, Paul finds his source of endurance somewhere else completely. Because he knows the only source that we have in the entire world that is unbound, and that is the very words of God. This means that we can be present at any level, no matter what we feel like we presently can or can't offer in a situation. That means that we can receive all we need in any circumstance of what we can or can't offer. This means that God can use us wherever we are. See, the greater reality is that Paul says in verse 9, the word of God is not bound. That means that it is unbound in his life. That means it is unbound through his life. That means the very word of God is unbound in and of itself, period. God cannot be stopped no matter where we find ourselves and no matter how bound we found ourselves. In Jeremiah chapter 36, there is a uh, a fascinating, fascinating scene where the prophet Jeremiah, he is uh, called by God to go have his words of judgment God's words written down on a scroll. So God says, Jeremiah, I want you to write these words down on a scroll, and then I want you to present them to King Jehoiakim. And the purpose of this is to bring judgment on the king, because God says, maybe Jehoiakim will repent. So, Jeremiah writes down the word of God, word for word, and uh, eventually this scroll that Jeremiah writes, it makes it to King Jehoiakim. And it's this crazy scene where uh, the king is in his winter house. And he's sitting in his winter house. He has a fireplace going. It feels kind of cozy. And the word of God is read before Jehoiakim. The problem is, is the king does not like what he's hearing. 
So what's happening is the word of God's being read to Jehoiakim, and every single stanza, Jehoiakim's taken his scissors or a knife or whatever he uses, and he cuts the word off. He takes it, and he throws it in the fire. The word's read some more. He cuts the next thing off, throws in the fire over and over again until the entire word of God has now been burned. And the question we come to at this point in Jeremiah is who is more powerful? The word of a king, because look, it must have felt pretty nice. Like if somebody said something about you that you didn't like and you could just take it and throw it in the fire, like that has to feel pretty good, right? The problem is that the word of God cannot be bound. Because after that happened, Jeremiah received the exact same word from God once again, and God was not very happy about that and said, you've already chosen, and so now you will be judged. Not only was God's word written down again, but God's word was enacted against Jehoiakim in judgment. Listen, God will not let his word be bound. It doesn't matter the circumstance. It doesn't matter the power. God's word is unbound, and it is on the move. And God's word is how we endure. God's word moves in us. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter how we feel. It was the very unboundedness of God's word that worked through Paul. Paul wrote a lot of his letters that we now have in the word of God in chains. Think about the irony of that, that God would use a man in chains to write a word that we are now holding up here thousands of years later, the very word of God. And the word of God is unbound, and Paul says, therefore... He endures. The unbound word of God is the therefore in our life that allows us to endure in any circumstance. God's word doesn't just move in us. God's move, word can move anywhere. It moves from prison. It moves uh, in us no matter what circumstances we're in. His word moves anywhere. But not only that, God's word can move in any type of person. Paul could have focused on just writing his letters to the church and been like, look, I'm bound in chains. You know, these Roman soldiers, like, there's no way. They're they're pagans. They're mean. They locked me up. They've beat me. Why would I even do anything else but just write some letters? But no, Paul actually chose to spend his time, even in jail, talking to and sharing the gospel with these Roman soldiers. Paul writes this in Philippians 1.13. At one point as he's in prison, he says that the gospel has, quote, become known throughout the entire imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Do you get that? Paul is in prison, and while he is bound in chains, some of the most unlikely people that would have ever had a chance to hear the gospel, who would have ever decided to respond to the gospel, the very Roman imperial guard have begun responding and coming to know this Jesus. One scholar said of this that that kind of influence would have been staggering. Just so you know, when he said the entire Roman imperial guard, there are estimates between historians that that was between just a few thousand to up to 10,000 people. Listen, the word of God can move in anybody. And my question to you this morning is if God can move in that way while Paul is bound in prison, What is your excuse as to why God can't move in the life of fill in the blank? Your family member, your friend, your co-worker. And if Paul, if Paul can see pagan Roman imperial guards saved, why can't you believe that God can do that 
through his unbound word. God is in the business through his word of unbinding. Listen to this Charles Spurgeon quote. He said this so much better than I can. As the binding of Paul was not the binding of the word of God, so the death of ministers is not the death of the gospel. The feebleness of workers is not its feebleness. The bondage of the preacher's mind is not its bondage. The coldness of man is not its coldness. The falsehood of hypocrites does not falsify it. The spiritual ruin of sinners does not defeat the gospel. The rejection of it by unbelievers is not its overthrow. Rejoice that the word of the Lord has free course. Arouse yourselves to work with it and by it. Accept its free power and be yourselves free at once. The word of God unbinds even the sinner that we think we could give up on. God's word brings freedom. Now, why do we endure? Paul says in the second half of verse 10, he says, he endures for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The aim of Paul's endurance as he looks to the unbound word of God, the aim is for the sake of the elect, right? Remembering looks backwards. Enduring now is looking forwards, right? And as we're enduring, it's, it's a gritty work. It's, it's, it's not easy. Enduring isn't something that, you know, most people are going to write a book about somebody who just happened to endure. It means holding on. But as he does this, it's for the sake of the elect. It's for the sake of God's very work of um, saving and bringing his salvation, and with his salvation, his glory to the people who he might save. We just have been studying in Romans 9. If, if you want a, a little uh, a reminder about what God does through election, thegarden.com backslash sermon, something like that. If, that's not really the link, but something like that. <laughs> something like that. You'll get there. But we've been talking about election in Romans 9. It talks about God's purpose of election continuing. Those who are the elect are those who either currently now believe or those also who currently one day will believe, who God has chosen to believe in him from the very foundations of earth. This is who Paul is saying that we endure on their behalf. This, this endurance is endurance for the church. Brothers and sisters, if you know Christ, you are part of the elect, and we endure on your behalf, but we also endure on behalf of those who are outside of these walls who do not yet know Jesus, but who will. There is an aim for our endurance, and as we do that, it is the word of God that unbinds. Romans ten seventeen says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Our God unbinds as we unleash his word into the world as we endure for the sake of the elect. So brothers and sisters, may we endure together in this work. Wherever God has you, whatever limitations that you have in your circumstances, whatever limitations you have just as who you are, he has called us to endure together for a higher calling that we might see his unbound word, unbind more people. Now, as we wrap up this morning, Paul just goes ahead and puts an emphasis on this by saying, yes, yes, it's worth it. Yes, it's possible because he is faithful, right? 
Suffering and enduring are hard, and he knows that. So in the midst of this context, we, we need an encouragement. We need a reminder. And so what Paul brings is what he calls a trustworthy saying. Um, and a lot of scholars think that this actually came as, as an old Christian hymn of some sort. Um, what, what a lot of the language draws from is, is Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew and, and Paul's words in Romans. And I, and I wish we had more time to spend here on this as we close this morning. But he says this, If you have died with him, you will live with him in verse 11. This, is, this, this looks back to, if we've died with him, this is a looking back to where Paul's already said, you're going to suffer, right? So if you suffer with him, then he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. This looks back where Paul was just calling us to endure with him. Then he says, if we deny him, he will deny us. But the thing is, is if he is worth it, we won't deny him. And if we endure, we can't deny him. But then he ends this with something that is very profound. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now, this is really interesting, though, because, see, what you would have thought, he just said, if we deny him, he's going to deny us. So you would think that if we're faithless, then he is faithless. That's what you'd think. But Paul says faithful instead. Now, here's the thing, though, that's interesting. He gets to another thing that clarifies this even more. He says, for he cannot deny himself. And here's what this means. Yes, God is not faithless when we're faithless, but I do want to remind you that God, this is also not saying God is faithful to us when we're unfaithful. That's not what, God, what the word says here. It says that he cannot deny, not us. It says he cannot deny himself. Here's what this means for us this morning. It means that God, in his faithfulness, on one hand, is a faithful God to judge those who do not repent and put their trust in him. But it also means, because of Christ's death, because of his resurrection, because he died and called us to be found in him, that for those who are in Christ Jesus, he literally, because of the nature for who God is, cannot deny those who are in him. That is a greater truth than we could ever imagine. If you are in Christ this morning, he will not deny you because you are found in Christ. His faithfulness to us should encourage us. There is no greater security and there is no greater delight that we have as we suffer and as we're bound and as we endure and remember, we remember that he is faithful. I'll close with a story. This is from the book, Steal Away Home. There's a man named Thomas Johnson and he uh, was a slave. At this point in his life, he was in his lower 20s. Uh, he was living in Virginia in the mid-1800s and, and Thomas Johnson had lived his entire life in slavery. And one night, he was finally fed up, and he said, look, I have to escape. I have to do it. So he, he got out. Um, he started walking to try to sneak away. And as he was walking, um, it was kind of an eerie night. He could hear the leaves crunching under his feet as he began to walk. He could hear his own breath, but as he heard his own breath, he heard something in the distance, and it sounded kind of like a whispering. And so he followed that sound, and he followed it over to uh, another one of the slave shacks on the plantation that he lived on. And he snuck up to the slave shack and he peered into the window and as he looked in, 
he saw a group of slaves all together in a circle with their heads to the ground. And he heard the whispering of prayers. He heard them praying, and he continued to watch, and they stood up, and they stood in a circle, and they swayed back and forth, and they began to sing songs together. They began to sing songs about Jesus, about the gospel, about freedom. And as he listened to that, he heard about a freedom of something that was completely different than he had ever known. It was about a freedom in Jesus Christ. And as he would write later in his own kind of autobiography, he would say that that was an evening when he says, Jesus found me. This same Thomas Johnson would later move to Europe. He would later learn under Charles Spurgeon. And he would become one of the early missionaries, uh, one of the early African-American missionaries to the continent of Africa. Now, while Thomas Johnson was in Africa, he would suffer for the sake of the gospel. He would suffer for the sake of the elect while he sought to share the gospel in Africa as his wife passed away. But even then, he remembered. He remembered Christ Jesus. And he would also forever remember that group of slaves at the plantation who were bound. They were bound in chains together who rested in and proclaimed the unbound word of God to him and endured for the sake of the elect. And after the long story of his life and their lives together, even after their suffering and even after their bondage, they all remembered and they all endured. And their lives joined in unison in a chorus of the very glory of God, testifying together in their lives, just like I pray that testifies with our lives, that he is faithful. Let's pray. Great is your faithfulness, Lord Jesus. Great is your faithfulness. We are a people who are so weak. We are a people who suffer. We are a people who are bound. We are a people, if we're honest, God, who question sometimes, is it worth it? In other days, we question, is it even possible to endure? But we thank you, Lord Jesus that your word is unbound and that your gospel is true and that we can look to you, not just now. God, we, we endure just for a moment, just while we're here, but we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we will spend the rest of our lives remembering, looking to you, Lord Jesus, to the work that you have done and completed for us. And so we pray that you would meet us day by day with your presence and your faithfulness and for your glory. It's in your name I pray. Amen.